Oyez, oyez, oyez. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. We will hear argument this morning in Case 19-1392, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. General Stewart. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey haunt our country. That's Mississippi Solicitor General Scott Stewart laying out his state's opening argument on December 1st, challenging the framework of Roe v. Wade. For 50 years, they've kept this court at the center of a political battle that it can never resolve. While the decorum in the court was solemn, outside the atmosphere was confrontational, passionate, and at times, prayerful. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou, woman, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, But the issue of abortion access and the case before the court is not a First Amendment case about codifying the religious views on when human life begins. Six months after oral arguments, the barricade and fences at the Supreme Court are back up. Protesters are gathering, not just in Washington, D.C., but in state capitals around the country. When the case was argued in December, it was the first time for many Americans to learn that Mississippi has exactly one abortion service provider, the Jackson Women's Health Center. I think lots of Americans care about um, what happens to Roe v. Wade, and almost none of them understand what's going on. They don't understand what the law is now. I think most people still think Roe v. Wade is binding. It's not. Uh, Most people don't understand the strategies that are being used on either side or why they're being used. The disconnect between a legal right and having access to that right is one of the many perception challenges, according to historian Mary Ziegler. She's the author of Abortion and the Law in America, Roe v. Wade to the Present. There's always consistent polling data showing that lots of Americans do not really neatly fit into pro-life or pro-choice camps and struggle um, with the politics on either side because their views don't fit very well. They might, for example, want abortion to be legal and believe there's a right to choose, but support abortion restrictions, for example, or support some abortion restrictions and oppose other abortion restrictions and find that they don't have a political home on either side of the aisle. And the way often religious institutions like most Americans approach this issue is as a sort of black-white, pro-choice, pro-life issue. And I think sometimes that doesn't really capture what lots of Americans believe or what they might actually need from faith leaders. Most Americans don't think of themselves as activists on any side of this issue, but that may change according to Dr. Trisha Bruce. She's a sociologist of religion who studies abortion attitudes. One thing we did hear, if it did become an issue where the Supreme Court changes the legal landscape of abortion, then that might very well compel them into an activist-type position. To learn more about attitudes that go beyond the polls, I spoke to Dr. Bruce from her home in Knoxville, Tennessee. So I want to touch base with you and kind of understand, first of all, like, what are you doing in your research and what 
and how do you see it fitting in to this this conversation? You've done some really extraordinary work in this area of trying to unpack attitudes about abortion, particularly among people who hold beliefs that might present challenges in trying to negotiate and think about what those beliefs lead them to do in relationship to family and other folks they may know or be in relationship with who may seek to terminate a pregnancy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, essentially, the the challenge that we entered as sociologists was understanding that abortion attitudes are messy and complex, sometimes contradictory, sometimes ambivalent. And while on the one hand, that might seem unsurprising, on the other hand, it really is within a landscape of politics and public conversation and activism that frames the issue as much more of a binary, uh, whether it's using words like pro-choice or and pro-life, or whether it's looking at Supreme Court decisions representing one side or another. Uh, and so part of our task as sociologists then was to try to better understand and provide empirical data on the landscape of opinion that doesn't fit so neatly and cleanly into two sides of a conversation regarding abortion. And so our what we set out to do then was to sit down face-to-face, quite literally with Americans, this was just before the pandemic, uh, and take the time to ask questions and allow them to to share in their own words confidentially how they feel about abortion and what kinds of things connect to it, whether from their personal lives, their religious or spiritual lives, their political lives, their relationships, um, and here in ways that go beyond the kinds of measurement tools that we have from surveys and polling, which are, of course, useful, but they miss a lot of the picture. And quite frankly, we found some of those tools to be simply incorrect because they're unable to capture the the complexity and nuance that uh, is more true to how Americans describe their own views on the issue of abortion. Can you describe the methodology of your research? Absolutely. So we were uh, very careful regarding methodology because we knew, of course, this is a a topic that does receive so much attention. And so we sent out 2,500 letters to a random subset of Americans throughout the country in, in six different regions. And in that letter, there was an invitation to fill out a little demographic pre screener online. So it asked questions like um, their political party, their marital status, their race their age, uh, their gender, and the like. And we used that list of respondents, nearly 700 respondents from that, to create a sample of 217 Americans that closely approximates the diversity across the United States population as a whole. Uh, and so they, the, the full methodology can be found in, in the report. Um, and in that sense, it's a, a widely... Um, diverse array of Americans from different perspectives um, that did not know at the time when we invited them to participate that the study was about abortion. Uh, We told them that just before the interview, uh, but not at the point of selection for the study. Mm. And did that include religious diversity? I'm mindful of like national surveys often struggle with representation because of the small sample size when it comes to uh, religious diversity. But we have a growing 
segment of the population that does not identify uh, is spiritual, but none? Or how did that yes. voice get represented? Yeah, we absolutely paid attention to the religious profiles of our respondents, in particular because we know that religion can matter substantially for someone's views on abortion. Um, and we included in our sample an, an array of uh, folks who were affiliated with different religions, and that uh, that statistic roughly approximates the proportion of Americans who belong to our different traditions, including Christianity and, and the particular traditions within Christianity including Protestants and uh, mainline Protestants, evangelical Protestants, as well as Catholics, uh, as well as the the nuns, the non-religious, and then uh, Americans who also affiliate with different traditions. It it is true that given the sample of 217, it's difficult to have uh, a large number representing each individual group, but we absolutely included every tradition and were very uh, attuned to the ways in which different stories came out through that. Um, including even folks like mainline pros- uh, Protestants who said, we are, we feel like we are always left out of this conversation on abortion. So uh, happy to be able to, to share uh, a view that, that doesn't always look like what you hear about religion and abortion in the news. I look forward to diving in. For listeners who want to take a closer look, where can they find your research? You can find a summary of the report, which is called How Americans Understand Abortion, at the University of Notre Dame's website for the McGrath Institute, um, as well as on my own website, uh, trishabruce.com. And um, I'm on Twitter as well. uh, And I'll also, I have a a book forthcoming uh, with the University of California Press on this research, as well as other articles and whatnot. So lots of ways to, to dive into this work more deeply. Well, let's get into that. Explain to me one of the findings that you have that showed how a straight up poll on views about Roe v. Wade missed actually a point of view that they got it wrong. What? What? Give me an example of that. Yeah. So one of the examples that we found is that um, we often hear uh, that many Americans are legally, um, you know, hold a particular legal position on abortion. Um, and that's certainly true. But part of what that begins to mass is some of the, the moral thinking behind uh, their legal thinking. In other words, um, what we heard is this sort of blurred line uh, and in sometimes a contradiction between someone's moral view and a legal view. Um, so when we hear someone describe what their legal preference is vis-a-vis access to abortion. We don't hear what might be behind that, which is a potentially um, moral uncertainty or a, a something. We had many people, for example, say something like, well, I would never choose an abortion for myself. Or perhaps they had an abortion experience themselves um, and they had you know particular feelings about it. We had women who shared that they um, regretted their own abortion experiences. We had others who who shared that they that they didn't, but their moral opinion didn't always map and mirror onto their legal opinion. And sometimes when we hear statistics like the fact that um, a broad swath of Americans support legal access to abortion, which is true and which is reflected in our interviews, we 
forget or we leave out the fact that many of those same Americans, in fact, have some uh, potential moral opposition or moral ambivalence or feelings about, well, maybe it's not something that is that feels right or that should be the right decision to make in all situations. So there's there's a lot behind these sort of narrow statistics that we hear summarized. And what does that tell you? about where we are in our public discourse this week as reactions to the draft leak of this majority opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade has sparked mass protests and passionate um, activism and opposition, stories being shared on social media, people pouring, you know, out and rallying in front of state capitals, rallying in front of the White House. What what does what what do you suspect is happening based on your research around the dining table and in conversation that we may not be hearing? Well, first of all, what I think might be happening is that people are starting to talk about the issue more. Uh, and, you know, one thing that we observed in our interviews is that despite abortion being a nearly ubiquitous topic in uh, the media and in political conversations, it's not something that everyday Americans talk about that much. Uh, and there are lots of reasons for that, including a real reticence to enter into conversations that feel fraught or the feeling that this is going to taint a relationship even if I have an, a, an opinion that differs from someone else or a fear of disclosing, um, you know, particular beliefs or feelings or experiences. So one thing we might be seeing now is this conversation is starting to happen again. Um, also, because many of the Americans that we interviewed, I think, um, knew that the law, the legal landscape around abortion was evolving in the sense that certainly there were headlines at the time and, and sense regarding state legislation and bills being proposed or passed vis-a-vis abortion. But there was also this sort of embedded presumption that Roe v. Wade, even if it was continually challenged, would not change. Uh, and this was, you know, true of, of, um, Americans across the board, most of whom didn't describe themselves as activists particularly. But one thing we did hear from some of these same interviewees is that if suddenly that changed or if it did become an issue where the Supreme Court changes the legal landscape of abortion, then that might very well compel them into a um, more of an, an activist even type position. Uh, in other words, it might awaken what is otherwise a a more subtle agreement that doesn't come with any sort of activist behaviors. But this is a moment where, whether it's in the the polling booth, whether it's at the dinner table conversation, whether it's quite literally in the streets holding the sign, I do think that some Americans are now going to see this as a, a, a moment and an opportunity, regardless of their position, where this is again an issue that does need to be talked about and does need to be um, thought about and really in an informed and personal way uh, that is able to to best reflect the laws that they support for the country. I, I want to bring up the word stigma 
you, you didn't use it explicitly, but I'm curious in your research in the focus groups that it sounds like you convened with individuals in which they were able to share and open up stories to give you this view that people actually can have a moral opinion that they see as regulating their individual choices and have equally hold a legal opinion about the laws that should govern this land that would impact and influence the access of resources and rights of their neighbors uh, or even folks they don't know, that we're able to hold these kind of complicated, simultaneous beliefs that I may choose to believe this, but I live in a world in which you may not share the same moral belief system that I do. Therefore, you have a right to have access to something. I may never choose it, but I don't want to take away your right to have access to it. That's what I hear you saying, that you found that that attitudinal ability um, was was very much present not that long ago in conversations that you were having to better understand attitudes about abortion. Absolutely. So we we heard people in a very personal and sometimes passionate way talk about their views and their desires to support children, to support families, to support women who might be facing an unplanned pregnancy, uh, and might also share views that, hey, this is, you know, an abortion decision is not something that I feel like I would I would make myself, you know, if they're sort of imagining a, a hypothetical for themselves. The other thing to add to this, though, is that f- for most Americans, this is not hypothetical in the sense that um, many women are st- in our study, a quarter of the women in our study, in fact, which reflects the national statistic on uh, rates of abortion, had experienced an abortion personally. So this was not just an abstract uh, discussion for them. It was personal. And then the full three quarters of our interviewees knew someone personally who had experienced an abortion. So part of what's happening then is that as we're asking them to think through their own abortion position, they're also thinking through very real and personal stories of people they know in their lives who have experienced abortions. And for some, it became a conversation that did look like, well, I hold a particular moral view on this, uh, and yet my legal view or my preference is to recognize and understand that my view doesn't necessarily mirror that of the view of all Americans or the view of the personal friends and family I might know who have experienced abortion. Um, or, you know, there's also this sort of tension between ideals and realities, the ideal of having the resources and capacity and health status and other factors that might uh, be needed in order to foster a, a healthy pregnancy and a good childhood or a, a the resources needed to raise a child and all of this and then the reality that in fact sometimes those those present challenges and create different circumstances in which people are making decisions. And so I think, you know, in that sense, uh, Americans um, may not have all of the details and the nuance to understand the legal dimensions of every federal and state law, but they absolutely have the stories and the experiences to say, well, sometimes there, there are situations in which 
things are, I may have uh, one thought in one situation and one thought in another, or I may recognize that um, I hold one opinion and my friend who is in this situation living it might hold another. And for that reason, they may conclude that, in fact, the legal access should be more widely accessible uh, than their moral opinion might facilitate otherwise. Dr. Trisha Bruce is a sociologist of religion and the author of several books and reports, including How Americans Understand Abortion. She's an affiliate with the Notre Dame Center for the Study of Religion and Society. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices, a weekly public radio program that explores the way beliefs shape our world, our politics, and our culture. You can learn more about us at interfaithradio.org. I think this decision does not really go far enough. It simply says there's no right to abortion in the Constitution. So our big arguments in the case are abortion is a crime against humanity. It hurts women. It's killing a human being. Alan Parker is a lawyer and the founder of the Justice Foundation. His organization submitted three front-of-the-court briefs in support of the Mississippi law in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. For the last two decades, his organization has been part of the broader Christian legal movement working to overturn Roe v. Wade. He's also a strong advocate for safe haven laws that are designed to shield mothers from abandonment charges. The laws vary state by state and are controversial. Parker celebrates the safe haven laws as an ideal alternative to parenting. She can safely drop off her child at a hospital or fire station within a few designated time after birth at no cost, unlike abortion, and the state will take her baby and relieve her from 18 years of obligation of parenting. According to Dr. Trisha Bruce, a sociologist of religion who authored How Americans Understand Abortion, conservative Christian legal advocacy groups like the Justice Foundation are not in step with the way the majority of Americans believe or think about abortion. Earlier in the program, she describes some of the reasons why, including stigma and concern about judgment. Her research study took place in 2020 before the pandemic and included a large sample of Americans who shared in long-form interviews their opinions and ideas. The findings show there is a far more complicated and nuanced set of beliefs in the country than labels suggest. We get into the views on adoption and safe haven laws a little later. But first, I ask her about the perception of groups like the Justice Foundation. Let's get back to the conversation. I want to ask you a question about the conversations you had. And if you raised a question among those that you interviewed about the conservative Christian legal movement that has been behind this 40-year campaign to overturn Roe v. Wade using a variety of strategies, did was there an, was that something that came up in your conversations and in your interviews? And if so, what did you learn? You know, it's interesting because I think um, we we always have to take what people say at face value, but then also ask additional questions of what's behind that. And what I mean by that is that one of the questions that we asked was, um, well, to what extent does your political party connect to your views on abortion? And just on on its face and the way that people answered that question was 
not very much. Or, you know, people sort of drew a separation between their own personal views and the views that might be espoused by a particular party or party platform. And many uh, Americans who you know, affiliate with a, a particular party platform would nonetheless draw critiques or assessments of, of how successful that party was in terms of advocating for a particular position. So the ways that Americans narrate their own views build in this separation. But I think also what's happening is that, in fact, they are operating within this broader landscape of abortion that is providing particular frames and movements and has largely created abortion as this kind of symbolic wedge issue, even when ordinary Americans don't, in fact, think of it that way. And so it it balloons into this sort of hot-button separation between us and them um, and 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 that comes out in the ballot box. Um, so we we even had we had some Americans. I'm thinking of one interviewee in particular who said, "Well, here's what I really think about abortion." And in this case, he was talking about exceptions in particular cases. But he said, "But I I will not vote that way because I don't trust any politicians to be savvy enough to make that." to have the discretion to make that moral judgment. So he wanted to take a more absolutist stance. And in fact, oftentimes what the partisan platform provides is more of that absolutist stance. And many Americans feel quite uncomfortable with that. So they're trying to navigate and situate themselves among platforms that don't necessarily make room for their views, uh, not to mention um, folks who feel like they don't fit at all. So whether it's a Democrat who might identify as, as you know, call themselves pro, pro-life and, you know, take on that, that label, that identity, and yet not really feel like they have a home in their party, or likewise, Republicans who, who feel like they don't fit when they're trying to understand the role of access to abortion, not to mention the large swath of Americans who hold neither a Democrat or a Republican identity, which is a large proportion of people. Uh, and they too are trying to navigate this field that has been framed in a binary way that doesn't really talk through the issues of what's behind it. What does it mean to support families? What does it mean to uh, create laws um, that reflect the the values that in fact are held more in common than we might um, see at first blush? Mm. That's really interesting, um, the insights, particularly about trust of elected leaders to to be able to make some decisions that reflect one's uh, personal beliefs. And especially right now, as trust is definitely on the decline when it comes to elected leaders and now the court. In your discussions, did safe haven laws play a role in attitudes about um, abortion? And I ask that because that's become a central message from many organizations and advocates celebrating the potential overturning or anticipated overturning of Roe v. Wade, many pointing to safe haven laws uh, as a way of alleviating the burden, arguing that that makes a significant difference, much the way echoing uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett's oral argument questions to, to the petitioners in the December hearings of Dobbs v. Mississippi. 
Did that come up in your I know that your your research happened before Dobbs, but it's not a new talking point. I'm curious if that came up. Yes. Oh, tell me about that. What did you learn? <laughs> well, you know what came up more broadly and more generally is the issue of adoption. Uh, and so Americans, the Americans we interviewed didn't uh, necessarily point specifically to safe havens, although a few referenced that. And I imagine that would be even more commonly referenced given the attention that it received during the hearings. Uh, but adoption was a common theme. And so one of the phrases we heard quite readily among Americans, particularly Americans who feel morally opposed to abortion uh, and perhaps legally opposed as well, is there's always adoption. Uh, this is a phrase, that three-word phrase was repeated many times. Um, and so for many Americans, adoption um, was understood as a clear rationale and a clear alternative to abortion and therefore a justification for a higher level of regulation around abortion. Um, so the idea being that, well, um, if we want to support women and support a woman's decision not to parent, then adoption is an alternative. Uh, now, of course, they're embedded in that. There were also a number of um, uncertainties and critiques um, around uh, adoption or questions related to the foster care system. Uh, we spoke to women, as I mentioned, who had personal abortion experiences, and it was really interesting to hear how they narrated or included the idea of adoption and the way that they talked about their own decision-making processes. And this echoes some research that has been done by other sociologists, which is to say that oftentimes the way that women describe their decision is one that is made as a choice between parenting or abortion rather than parenting, abortion, and adoption, or adoption and abortion. And much of this is driven by financial uh, resources, so um, and also social support and stigma, which is a word that, that came up previously too. So to the extent that they might be feeling like they need to hide the fact that they're pregnant at all, or they can't share or disclose their pregnancy with a partner or to a parent or to an employer uh, for fear of reprisal. Uh, this drives women's decisions. And then also the financial pieces. So we had women tell us, well, I, I thought about uh, having an abortion until my mother said she would step in and help out and provide the resources available for it. Um, so all of that is to say that um, absolutely in a, in a more blanket sense, the idea of adoption was a common thread and it was especially raised when Americans who hold opposition to abortion would talk about alternatives or reasons why um, it would it would be okay to outlaw abortion. But even among Americans who fully support legal access to abortion, there was a, a perception of adoption as a very um, the ideal of adoption as a very positive um, possibility and option uh, that is available but should not be mandated. In your research. Did you ever present the scenario in which abortion was completely inaccessible and that the only option would be giving, carrying uh, a pregnancy to term and then 
putting a child up for adoption or availing, you know, the safe haven laws that exist in almost every state? You know, one thing that we were really surprised by was how much Americans presumed abortion to be readily available and easily accessible. Uh, There was very little discussion of what goes into actually procuring an abortion, meaning the cost of it, the amount of driving time that is often involved, the need to provide arrangements perhaps for other children, given given that more than half of abortion seekers are already mothers, uh, the kinds of of resources that it takes to um, acquire an abortion. Instead, there was really this sort of backdrop assumption of abortion as not only readily available and easily available, but for some Americans, too available, so too too easy. Um, And so it was almost the opposite in this Sense that, and I think that's why we're seeing such a, a a strong reaction now. People kind of opening their eyes to consider: Wait, what does that landscape look like if abortion were to not be available? Um, the other piece that's important to add here is that Americans tend to have uh, a very limited knowledge of state laws surrounding abortion, uh, unless again they have sort of personal experience and personal stories navigating that, which certainly many in our study did. Um, But without that knowledge, there was just more of a tacit understanding of, well, it's available in some form or another, you know, even if it means someone has to cross a state boundary. Uh, And so I think this new uh, idea, and I think the idea that is now being thrust into the American imagination of that option disappearing is one that instead conjures this, um, I think even potentially a fear among some Americans, because we heard among our interviewees this discussion of sort of the older times or, um, you know, coat hanger abortions or the years preceding Roe v. Wade. Or we also interviewed Americans who had lived in other countries where abortion was illegal, including uh, one woman I'm thinking of in particular who had an abortion uh, in another country where it was illegal at the time. So that that context was largely um, written off almost as um, something that the U.S. was not and would not be moving towards. Uh, and so this new moment politically, I think, is going to spark some of those those fears and awakening and recognition of a, a different milieu, which is not the ones the one that Americans have been imagining abortion in. Hmm. What drew you to this work? I am someone who likes to think about hard things and use data to do so. Um, I'm a sociologist who's written a handful of books on Catholics uh, and the Catholic Church, and I'm not afraid to enter confidential spaces where people can share what they really think. And sometimes listening to that helps to correct the understandings that we think we have more broadly about society. And I'm just deeply fascinated by that work. What do you see faith communities uh, doing in the last few weeks as as there has been discussion about um, the anticipated decision coming from the court on a number of issues related to religion in the public square and how it influences public life? Um, have you been have you been listening or watching how different 
groups of people aligned with different traditions are reacting? Faith communities are uh, a distinctive place in the American landscape where people across generations, across experiences, across socioeconomic statuses can grapple with hard conversations. And so they have for decades, of course, facilitated conversations that include um, issues around uh, not only abortion specifically, but around what does it mean to lead the good life or to support one's community and love one's neighbor. And so I think religious communities and congregations uh, more broadly um, from all faith traditions are poised and positioned to have these conversations, but also to facilitate movements around them. I mean, there's an immense level of resources that congregations, um, the hundreds of thousands of congregations there are around the country can mobilize. And that's why we see some of the most powerful um, lobbying and movements. Uh, You know, certainly we hear a lot about the religious right, um, which is true, but there are also religious movements on, on the left, or I would say everywhere in between um, that are are likewise uh, saying, hey, we need to have a conversation about this. And so I do think that there's a, a distinctive role and a, a service that is played by um, reasonable uh, religious leaders who, who are inviting this conversation. And I would just add to that as a sociologist in hopes also that there's data there and knowledge and information, um, even if it's news that we don't necessarily like to hear because it doesn't map onto what our hoped vision of society is. But if we can start where we are understanding what is, then we can move into a conversation about what ought to be. Dr. Trisha Bruce is a sociologist of religion and the author of several books and reports, including How Americans Understand Abortion. She's affiliated with the University of Texas at San Antonio and the Notre Dame Center for Religion and Society. For more information about her work, please visit this week's show notes at interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's show. Next week, we continue the conversation talking with leaders from the faith community, including the head of the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, Reverend Katie Zay. This week's producer is Kevin McCarthy. Special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, music by Audio Binger, MC Yogi, and Blue Dot Sessions. If you enjoyed this program, I invite you to share it. Head over to our website, share the link, or stream the podcast. Just search Perfect Voices. You can share that too and leave a review. Friends, wherever you are, I hope you are safe. I hope you are well, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week. 